Christ and welcome to Concord Matters, a show that seeks to be united in our confession of the Christian faith through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says it best when he says in Romans chapter 15, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We seek this harmony by the Holy Spirit through the study of the clear and concise teachings confessed in the Book of Concord. Because the Book of Concord is not a separate book that makes up stuff, but it is in accord with God's holy word. I'm your host, Brady Finner, District President of the Minnesota North District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thank you for joining us on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Today, we conclude our study of the preface of the Book of Concord, and we were greatly blessed to dig into the history of the theological convictions of the Concordians of the 16th century, the last, actually, last three studies that we've had. And today, we continue to look kind of a a broad strokes when you see certain words in today's study that point us to the theological realities and why they're important for the baptized for the people that hear these words, to have a clear conscience. And I encourage you, our listeners, that when we go through all these studies, look for the word conscience, because the Reformers were obsessed to make sure that people who heard the Word of God proclaimed and the gospel in all its purity, that their conscience was clear with their God through Christ for Christ's sake. So today it it captures that. Why is the Book of Concord important? Why is it important for certain theological realities? Not for the sake of winning an argument, but for the sake of the people who hear them. So today open up your Book of Concord, open up your Bible, and let's start confessing. If you have any questions concerning our study of the preface of the Book of Concord or any part of the Book of Concord that we cover, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org. KFUO at KFUO.org. Joining us in the Confession of Christ, we welcome back the Reverend Terry Forkey, President of the Montana District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Pastor Forkey, welcome back to Concord Matters. Great to be with you, uh, President Finner, and and, uh, all your listeners. I'm looking forward to looking at this uh, preface to the Book of Concord. Awesome. Well, you know, you know, Pastor, it has been a, a wild ride, I would say, in many ways, for me to continue to look at the, the background of the Book of Concord here in the preface. So it, before we start reading parts of this, we have it all broken down as we do this. Is there anything you wanted to, I don't know, just start with as you look at the preface? I'm assuming you don't read this every week, the preface of the Book of Concord. Well, I think, yeah, I think as you said, <clears throat> what I would like to do today, I have a number of points that I'd like to make as we read through read through this conclusion of the preface. But I think the big thing is, is as you said, is what does it mean to us today? How do we apply this, this to our daily life as Christians? And particularly with focus on making sure that the pure doctrine of Christ is alive inside of us and is heard by those, uh, uh, especially those who don't know Jesus as their Savior. So let's dig in. We are in the reader's edition of the Book of Concord. Um, we are specifically on page 8. Uh, the Book of Concord on page eight, it has the, the subheading, the Book of Concord on uh, number 19. That's where we're going to start. I'm just going to read uh, portions of this and just, you know, rehash where we are. So we come together um, to confess the words of the preface. These words are written. Now about the phrases and forms of expression that are used in this Book of Concord. 
We speak of the majesty of the human nature in the person of Christ, elevated and placed at God's right hand. We do this in order to remove all subtle suspicions and causes of offense that might arise from the different uses of the word abstract, as both the schools and the fathers have used this term up to now. In distinct and clear words, our theologians want to testify that this majesty is in no way to be ascribed to Christ's human nature outside the personal union. Neither are we to grant that Christ's human nature possesses this majesty as its own or by itself even if the personal union, essentially, formally, habitually, subjectively. The schools like these terms, although they are not good Latin. For if we would adopt this method of speaking and teaching, the divine and human natures, with their properties, would be confused. And the human nature, with its essence and properties, would be made equal to the divine. Indeed, the human nature would be completely denied. Therefore, the theologians conclude, that we should believe that this union happens according to the method and order of the personal union. Learned antiquity has spoken cautiously about this subject. It is a mystery so great that it exceeds all the powers of our natural ability and understanding. Now, just a reminder to our listeners, as we look at this, the wording is a little bit different than maybe you hear on the news or on the sports channel. So uh, it's good for us to break this down. But really, it begins with talking about the natures of Christ. Pastor, Pastor, how do you want to break this down? Yeah, so that's exactly what we need to do to make sense out of this. Um, the main topic here is the personal union of Christ. That is the union of the divine and the human natures in the person of Christ. And in order to kind of make sense of the context of paragraph 19, which you just read, you have to go back to um, paragraph 18. So the beginning of paragraph 18, um, and it reads, now some of the theologians, when they wrote about the Lord's Supper, were drawn against their will by their adversaries to disputes about the personal union of the two natures of Christ. So the topic at hand, paragraph 19, is the two natures of Christ, and specifically with reference to the controversy developed with regard to the understanding of the Lord's Supper. So the, the specific question basically was, well, how in the world can the body and blood of Jesus be present everywhere at the same time as Christians around the world are celebrating the Lord's Supper? And that may be a question your listeners have uh, come upon for their, for their own lives. How does this work? And the, and the core answer was, well, this is the, the hypostatic or the personal union of Christ. That is the union of the divine and the human natures in the person of Christ. The Calvinists said, I'll give you a fancy Latin term, finitum non compux infiniti. That is, the finite is not capable of the infinite. And so they were saying, basically, that the body and blood of Christ can be present everywhere. The body and blood of Christ are reserved in heaven, and he is only spiritually present in the Lord's Supper. The Lutherans were saying, no, the body and blood of Christ are actually there, present in the Lord's Supper everywhere, because that's what he said. And so the Lutherans went about trying to explain this as best as they could. You see in the Bible, um, Jesus doing things that look of divine nature and Jesus doing things that look of human nature. So for example, um, this past Sunday's gospel lesson, John 11, the raising of Lazarus, this 
a great place to see just happened the way God works things out. That was the gospel lesson. In that gospel lesson, you see um, Jesus know somehow after two days after he was told that he uh, Lazarus was sick, then Jesus knows that Lazarus has died. That appears to be something of the divine nature. And yet later on, we read that Jesus was greatly moved when he saw Mary and the, um, and the other folks crying, and Jesus himself started to cry. That looks very human. How do we understand this? So the Lutherans kind of, they came up with three statements. I'll spare you the, the Latin on these, but they came up with three categories or ways of talking about the, the union between the divine and the human natures. And basically it boils down to this. <clears throat> they said, one thing that they wanted to say was that um, the attributes of both the human and the divine natures, when it, when it looked like some, something divine, of divine origin or nature, and when it looked like something of human uh, origin or nature, both of those natures were ascribed to the full person of Christ. That's the, the personal union of Christ. So whether it was divine or, or human nature act, act, both of them belong to Jesus because he is one person. He's a real person. The second thing they wanted to say was kind of really pointed to this controversy, and that was how does the divine majesty get ascribed to the human the human person. And their answer basically was, because he's God, he gets to do what he wants to do. <laughs> and the third one, <clears throat> which really gets, this also is pointed up in the gospel lesson. Um, Jesus says to his disciples, I was glad, I'm glad that I wasn't there so that you might, be, uh, you know, when, when Lazarus died, so that you might believe. And it points to this fact. This is the third thing they wanted to say about the divine and human natures in Christ. That whether it was a divine, whether a particular act was of divine nature or human nature, both of them were done by Christ for the sake of the salvation of the world. So it's just kind of really kind of nitty gritty stuff in Lutheran doctrine, but they're very important to our life together. How does it work that Jesus' body and blood can be present? He is God. He gets to do that for the sake of our salvation. And and if you're for your listeners, hopefully you'll remember in Luther's small catechism, hopefully you memorize this. If you haven't, dig up the catechism and memorize it. In, in Luther's explanation, second article, second article of the creed, he says, I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord. And that's real good summary for us. That's what we need to know. And, and that's what the, um, this preface kind of ends on. It's a mystery so great, it exceeds all powers of our natural ability and understanding. So what we can say is, Jesus is truly God and truly man for the sake of the salvation of the world. Reminder to our listeners, if you want to listen about the second article of the Creed, it was President Forky, who was on the last time, <laughs> on November 19th. So as he just quoted this, how important it is to understand fully who Jesus is, because we can get caught up in worldly language as opposed to simply what Scripture has to say. Pastor, anything else you wanted to highlight before we move on? I think let's let's move on, because I have a few other things to say. 
<laughs> just a few. Exactly. Here we go. Uh, we're on number 20 on page 9 of the preface to the Book of Concord. Now about the condemnations, censures, and rejections of godless doctrines, especially what has arisen concerning the Lord's Supper, these had to be clearly set forth in this, our declaration, thorough explanation, and decision about controversial articles. This was done not only so that all may guard against these condemned doctrines, but also for certain other reasons that could in no way be ignored. Pastor, we talked about possibly ending at this point. Did you want to highlight something? I do, something? yes. I think this is this is a, a key understanding of uh, the distinct methodology of Lutheran theological argumentation. How do Lutherans argue about doctrine? And it, and it does make a distinction between us and others. And so um, the authors of the preface here write about, they, they want to make clear, why do we include these condemnations and censures and rejections of godless doctrine? Are we just trying to be mean? And that's the way we sometimes get characterized when we say, no, that's wrong. We don't believe that. That's not according to the word of God. So this is a distinct methodology of Lutheran theological argumentation. You can see it most clearly when you read in the Augsburg Confession. Most of those paragraphs begin, we believe, teach, or our teachers believe, teach, and confess. And then it gets to the end and they say, therefore we reject. And that's exactly what, uh, what the, the preface that we just read is talking about. There are rejections, condemnations, and censures. Now, why is that significant for your listener today? It is to make clear the pure doctrine of Christ. Because sometimes if we say, this is what we believe, teach, and confess, and don't reject the contrary opinions, people might say, well, they're, they're still accepting these others. And it's the kind of the spirit of the age of 21st century America. I think, maybe we should talk about that a little bit, but I really think this, this spirit of love, which gets interpreted in 21st century America as let everybody do and think whatever they want to do and think and don't condemn them for it, has an impact. And, and I, I'm concerned that the good, solid Lutherans get buy into that spirit of the age and say, well, maybe we shouldn't make these condemnations. Maybe we shouldn't point out what's wrong about others' doctrines. No, this is the Lutheran way of arguing theology to clearly say, this is what we believe, teach, and confess, and this is what we reject. So I would say to your listeners, uh, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, let us hold fast to the confession of our faith. This is what God has given to us, and let's say it clearly. And this is so vital, uh, Pastor, because I'll give you an example. Um, for you, our listeners, you can go to page 35 of the, the Reader's Edition, which evidently is a second edition of the Reader's Edition. Um, and, and it talks about this baptism. It speaks about what baptism is, which we speak very clearly. But then at the end, number three, uh, Article 9 of baptism, our churches condemn the Anabaptist to reject baptism of children and say that children are saved without baptism. This, this brings with it, you could say, all right, because I, you could talk to somebody who has a, who's maybe evangelical or uh, Baptist or uh, a reformed, and you'll say, okay, this is when your child is given, they're given grace offered through baptism. It's, it's for salvation. A lot of people kind of nod their heads and say, yeah, you're right. 
But then you say, and that's why you should baptize all ages. All of a sudden, they start asking more questions. And the clarity is sorely needed because, for example, should that person be your godparent? Because they don't believe that your child was saved when they were baptized. I mean, these are just important realities for us as Lutherans, not to be mean, like Pastor said, but for the sake of clarity to make sure that, well, the conscience is clear when we're looking at what actually happens or what did Christ do or who Christ is even. Pastor, anything else you want to share on that? Because I think that is something we don't do in America, I would say, particularly well and very particular to Lutheran theology and how we um, how we articulate it. Yeah, I, I just think that it is significant for us to, to address this fact that we are different than many others who want to present doctrine and we want to be as clear as possible. And, and I really appreciate your uh, emphasis on for the sake of the conscience. We'll get to that a couple of times later on mm. in this text as well. For the sake of the conscience, so that um, they understand this is what we believe, teach, and confess, and this is what we reject. Well, let's keep moving forward. We are basically the middle, uh, right towards the beginning of number 20. It begins with the word, so, um, on page 9 of the preface. So it is not at all our plan and purpose to condemn people who err because of a certain simplicity of mind, but are not blasphemers against the truth of the heavenly doctrine. Much less indeed do we intend to condemn entire churches that are either under the Roman Empire of the German nation or elsewhere. But rather has been our intention and desire in this way to openly criticize and condemn only the fanatical opinions of their stubborn and blasphemous teachers. We judge that they should in no way be tolerated in our dominions, churches, and schools. For these errors conflict with God's clear word. They do so in such a way they cannot be reconciled with the world, with the word, excuse me. We have written these condemnations also for this reason, that all godly persons might be diligently warned to avoid these errors. We have no doubt whatsoever that even in those churches that have not agreed with us in all things, many godly and by no means wicked people are found. They follow their own simplicity and do not correct under and correctly understand the matter itself. But in no way do they approve the blasphemies that are cast forth against the Holy Supper as it is administered in our churches, according to Christ's institution. With the unanimous approval of all good people, the Lord's Supper is taught according to its words of Christ's testament itself, Matthew 26. We also in great hope that if these simple people would be taught correctly about these things, the Spirit of the Lord aiding them, they would agree with us and with our churches and schools to the infallible truth of God's word, John 17. And certainly, a duty is laid especially upon all the church's theologians and ministers with such fitting moderation. They should also teach from God's word those who have erred from the truth, either from a certain simplicity or ignorance. They should teach about the peril of their salvation. They should fortify them against corruptions, lest they may perish while the blind are leaders of the blind. Therefore, by our writing, we testify in the sight of Almighty God and before the entire church that it has never been our purpose by means of the godly formula for union to create trouble or danger to the godly who are suffering persecution today. We've already entered into the fellowship of grief with them, moved by Christian love, so that we are shocked at the persecution and most painful tyranny that is used against these poor people with such severity. We sincerely detest it, and no way do we agree to the shedding of innocent blood, which undoubtedly will be required with great severity from the persecutors at the Lord's awful judgment before Christ's court. 
they will then certainly render a most strict account and suffer, suffer fearful punishment. A lot there to chew on, Pastor, but uh, it, you know, one thing that really struck me is our goal is not to go after the, the simple-minded, if you will, um, but to go after the blatant uh, heresies, if you will, of the day. How do you want to break this down? Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's a good place to start. I'm not sure that uh, those who disagree with us would appreciate being, I think, called three or four times simple-minded or <laughs> simplistic. It's true. But nonetheless, the, the goal was not to, to condemn those. And, and what, this, uh, what this paragraph brings up is really important, um, especially for, for your listeners, to kind of capture this idea. Um, it's sometimes called the felicitous inconsistency, meaning a, a, a happy difference, that is, that, that people can remain Christians even if they err in some doctrines. So that's what that is pointing out. These people don't agree with the pure doctrine that we've presented in some ways, but, but we're not saying they're not Christians. We're not saying that they're, they're going to hell. Of course, there's some danger in holding uh, to, holding to err in, in doctrines because it might eventually lead you to fall away from the faith entirely. But there, there is an understanding in, in the Lutheran presentation of, of doctrine that people can disagree on certain things. So, so to put it in practical terms, we do not teach that heaven will be filled solely with LCMS people. Now, that, again, to go to your, your beginning point, ought to be a great comfort to your listeners, because I'm sure that, that all of them have friends and relatives who are not LCMS. Hopefully, they're, they're Christians. They're attending someplace where they can hear the, the Word of God read to them. Um, but, but they should be comforted by, by this idea, this, this presentation of doctrine, that they may err, but they can still believe that Jesus is their Savior. And there is a, a bit of a relation. If your listeners would like to read a little bit more, I would direct them to, to read Article 7 of the Augsburg Confession, which basically says, for the sake of the unity of the church, there needs to be agreement on gospel and sacraments. And, and that, that's kind of a different topic, the unity of the church. But nonetheless, it kind of boils it down to these are the things that are really important. And there may be errors in other place, parts of doctrine that are not going to condemn people uh, as, as being unbelievers. Well, Pastor, I mean, we can kind of keep moving along here. you have anything else you wanted to share about that uh, felicitous inconsistency? Well, let me just point out, there's kind of a subtext in this paragraph, in paragraph 20. There's a bit of a subtext towards the end about freedom of religion, because he says, um, we have already entered into a fellowship of grief with them, moved by Christian love. We are shocked at the persecution, the most painful tyranny. We detest it. Um, so there's, I mean, Lutherans did, kind of recognize even other Christians were suffering persecution. And uh, there is a sort of unity in this. When he, when he refers to the fellowship of grief, he's talking about weeping with those who weep. Um, that's the Romans 12 passage. So there's this subtext of freedom of religion. There ought not to be persecution for, as we say today, sincerely held religious beliefs. Well, great. Should we, should we keep moving on, boss? Yes, let's go. 
I'm sorry, yeah, I called you boss, but that's just kind of fun. Okay, uh, we're on page 10, on <laughs> page 10 of uh, the Book of Concord, preface of the Book of Concord um, on the Reader's Edition, paragraph 21. In these matters, as we mentioned earlier, this has always been our purpose in our land. Lands, dominions, schools, churches, and no other doctrine should be proclaimed and accurately set forth except that which is founded upon God's word and contained in the Augsburg Confession and the Apology when properly understood in its genuine sense. Opinions conflicting with these are not allowed. Indeed, this formerly of agreement has begun and completed with this purpose. So before God and all mortals, we once more declare and testify that in the declaration of the controversial articles, of which mention has already been made several times, we are not introducing new confession, nor are we introducing one different from that which was presented in 1530 to Charles V of happy memory. But we wish indeed to lead our churches and schools, first of all, to the fountains of Holy Scripture and to the creeds and then to the Augsburg Confession, that which we have mentioned before. We most earnestly encourage that the young men be instructed in this faithfully and diligently, especially those who are being educated for the holy ministry of the churches and schools. Then the pure doctrine and profession of our faith may, by the Holy Spirit's help, be preserved and spread also to our future generations until the glorious advent of Jesus Christ, our only Redeemer and Savior. Pastor, we have about two minutes left before our break. How do you want to... Um, uh, touch on a few things. Okay. So the, this section points us to the, the solas of the Lutheran Reformation. Uh, some of your listeners may remember the sola scriptura, sola fide, soli gratia. So let's just do sola scriptura, which is the main point there, the middle of paragraph uh, 21 in this sentence. We wish to indeed lead our churches and schools, first of all, to the fountains of Holy Scripture. Sometimes Lutherans get accused of, oh, you, you put the confessions higher than the Bible. This mm text helps you argue against that. It's not true. Correct. First, the Holy Scriptures. Sola Scriptura, meaning only the Bible. Our doctrine comes from the Word of God, and, and we find great comfort, uh, and, I, and I wish to convey that to your listeners. We find great comfort in this confession. What we believe, teach, and confess is founded on the truth of God's Word and on God's Word only. And then the others, as, as mentioned in that continuing paragraph, the, uh, the creeds and the, the rest of the confessions explain what the Bible says. This is the truth of God's word. And Pastor, I, I love this language before we get to our break, when it says, to the fountains of Holy Scripture. I thought that was just a wonderful reality of God's grace is being poured upon, upon God's people. Anything to say to that? Because oh, yeah. you said it all begins with that. Go ahead. Yes. So I... It, I was kind of shortening things up, but the fountains of Holy Scripture is a great poetic image because it leads us to a couple of things that we should not overlook. First of all, Jesus says, I am the water of life. There it is. Mm. The fountains of Holy Scripture is Jesus himself. And then secondly, how is that realized in the life of Christians today? The fountain of life, the fountains of Holy Scripture lead to baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. And so the fountains, the water of life, that the Holy Scriptures bring to us, touch you in your baptism. Well, thanks be to God. We'll get more to this on the other side of our break. We are concluding our study of the preface of the Book of Concord, and we will be right back.
Hello, friends. I'm Pastor Phil Boo, host of Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning at 11 a.m., join me and a guest pastor as we explore God's Word, which strengthens our faith and guides our lives. You can listen over the air, online at kfuo.org, or through your favorite podcasting app. Just search for Thy Strong Word, only from KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. We are studying the preface to the Book of Concord with Pastor Terry Forkey of Mon- the Montana District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Pastor, we we just touched on a. Re- I mean, there's a there's a theme that comes through everything that they're mentioning here, and one of them that really struck me that I want to bring up, and then you bring up what what else you have in your study is just this reality that they did not want to make a new confession. They're going to speak more about this later, but this is not them making up something new. And we'll see this a lot in the Augsburg Confession, where they say this is what Scripture says, this is what the early church fathers say, this is what we say. And once again, it begins with Holy Scripture, the fountain of God's grace being bestowed on his people, clearly confessed in these confessions. And all of it is for us to be able to teach and preach now and for future generations. I mean, to me, I'm more and more excited to actually dig into the actual confessions that are coming up here soon. Pastor, anything else you wanted to highlight? Yeah, that's that's a great point. Um, It does touch a little bit on historical context. You have to understand that... um, they were being accused of coming up with new doctrines and things that hadn't ever been heard before. And their argument, their answer was, no, this is nothing new. This is what the Bible always taught. That's the emphasis on the fountains of, of the Holy Scriptures. This is what the Word of God actually teaches. So we're not coming up with anything new. And it was really an answer to uh, the accusations of, of the Roman Catholic Church and, and that they were departing by bringing up some, departing from true doctrine by bringing up something new. All right, well, you ready to move on? We're on number 22. Let's continue. Okay, let's keep going. All right, here we go. Uh, Paragraph 22 on page 10. This is the case. Being instructed from the prophetic and apostolic scriptures, we are sure about our doctrine and confession. By the grace of the Holy Spirit, our minds and consciences have been confirmed to a greater degree. Therefore, we have thought that this book of Concord shall be published. For it seemed very necessary that amid so many errors that has arisen in our times, as well as causes of offense, variances, and these long-continued disagreements, there should exist a godly explanation and agreement about all these controversies. It should be derived from God's word, according to the terms by which the pure doctrine might be distinguished and separated from the false. Besides, this matter is important also for another reason. There are troublesome and contentious people who do not allow themselves to be bound to any formula of the pure doctrine. They may not have the freedom to serve controversies according to their good pleasure that cause grounds for offense, or to publish and to fight for extreme opinions. For eventually, the result of these things is that the pure doctrine is hidden and lost, that nothing is passed on to future generations except academic opinions and delays of judgment." Pastor, I mean, there's some very clear, uh, very direct language here. Where do you want to begin? Yeah, so this uh, paragraph 22 kind of deals with the purpose of the publication of the Book of Concord. So, uh, which you would expect in a preface, of course, but it points out some very important things for us to capture for ourselves and 
application for our own lives. So if you look at paragraph um, yeah, 22, um, probably the third or fourth sentence, therefore we thought that this book of Concord should be published. So what's the point and why are they doing it? Um, first of all, uh, a few more sentences later, it should be derived from God's word. So again, the point that we just made, that is that they're, they're not trying to say anything new. They just want to say, this is what the word of God says. But there are two distinct reasons for their publication. So second sentence after that, there are troublesome and contentious people who do not allow themselves to be bound to any formula of pure doctrine. So the first reason for publishing the Book of Concord is to combat false doctrine. That is, this is what the Word of God teaches. And the second reason is to deal with upholding the pure confession for the sake of, of two things. The, the one I just read, the troublesome, contentious people who do not allow themselves to be bound. So there are some people in our world who have unbound their consciences from the word of God. That is, they won't allow their consciences to be bound to anything that the word of God teaches. They just want to do what they want to do. And that's part of the spirit of our age. This is what we see. People argue against uh, our confessions, the Lutheran confessions, or any form of confession, because they don't want their consciences to be bound. I'm free to do what I want to do. And the second uh, point under um, the being unbound from the pure confession is made a, a little bit later. And that is about, uh, for eventually, the result of these things is that pure doctrine is hidden and lost. Nothing is passed on to future generations. So the gradual deterioration of, of the pure doctrine will occur. It's almost like, um, it's almost like it, what you see in nature, if you, if you leave something alone, it's going to deteriorate. It's, it's going to fall apart. If you, if you have a house and it's abandoned, after a while, it's just going to fall apart. So if you don't attend to pure doctrine, it's going to gradually deteriorate, and then it won't be passed on to future generations. So for us today, this preface to the Book of Concord brings out some really significant aspects of our life of faith. Combat, uh, combat false doctrine and uphold the pure confession. And that's not just directed to theologians. Your listeners in daily life bear this responsibility as Christians also. So, so in, in conversation with a, a friend or a relative and someone says something that's really off the wall, um, let's say someone says baptism doesn't save, then it's incumbent upon us to say, no, no, the Bible says it, baptism saves. God works in the power of his word in the waters of baptism to save by bringing, by bringing faith. And, the, and then, this is probably more significant, we bump into people all the time that, that just refuse to be bound to anything. They want to kind of make up their life as they go along. So part of... of uh, Upholding pure doctrine is to is to help recognize to, that we make this confession. This is what we believe, teach, and confess, and this is what we reject in order to combat the gradual deterioration of the unbound conscience. 
I love how our last sentence that we read is the importance of this. Like you said, this is a salvation issue that if someone says, well, that doesn't really save you. Um, well, this is a confusion. And we talk about this, the two natures of Christ, the presence of the Lord's Supper. These are salvation um, issues of saying, you know, this is what scripture says, and this is why it's important. And then it ends in the last sentence we had, which is kind of halfway, not even halfway down uh, this second portion of page 10, then nothing is passed on to future generations, like you mentioned, except academic opinions and delays of judgment. And this is important because us as pastors, um, theologians can get kind of lost in the clouds at times. And if this doesn't, you know, isn't proclaimed to sinners, including ourselves, then it's just academic opinions. And then nobody wins because there's no salvation in academic opinions. It is about Christ for you. So any thoughts on that? That's an interesting way to end. That is a, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it's so important because um, it is a, uh, casualty of the vocation of, of being a theologian that you sometimes want to dig into the weeds so much, you know, we could talk about the idiomaticum, you know, and, and, and just lose the application to daily life of the Christian. And so this also, we kind of skipped over this, but I'll just refer back to verse, uh, paragraph 21 towards the end there. Um, they write, we must earnestly encourage that the young men be instructed in this faithfully and diligently especially those who are being educated for the holy ministry of the churches and schools, then pure doctrine and profession of our faith may be preserved and spread. <clears throat> so it, the, the point that you made in the beginning about comfort to consciences is specifically important for the pastoral ministry because pastor means to shepherd the, the sheep and the sheep need to hear how the word is applied to their lives so they can live the life of faith every day. And if, if we get... If we get to the point where it's just academic opinion and, and we don't realize the significance of, well, what that uh, paragraph 22 is about, the significance of the publication of the Book of Concord, that is combating false doctrine and upholding pure the pure confession. If it's just academic opinion, well, then so many of faithful Christians will just be lost and think, well, that's, that's the work of the theologians. It's not about me. It is about you. It's life. It's the life of faith every day. There was one time I was leading Bible study, and I brought up some very rich theological, basically academic opinion, and it was pretty good. I, I was pretty, I was pretty sharp that day. And my <laughs> wife raises my hand, raises her hand, and she says, "So, <laughs> so what?" And I was like, "And I was like, well, this, this is really cool." And she's like, "But that doesn't affect me." is how she basically was saying, of course, she did it in a loving way, of course. But just a good reminder for all of us is, okay, let's bring this back to to the listener, to them, and to be clear, which is why we have the Book of Concord to begin with. Pastor, anything else you want to highlight before we move on? Well, there's always there's always someone like that in our Bible studies, right? <laughs> and, and it's, exactly. look, I mean, God brings us to humility by reminding us, so apply <laughs> the Word of God to my life. Yes, Amen. it does Amen. make a difference. Yeah. It does make a difference. Well, let's continue on. We are we are on page 10, about halfway down the second section, with beginning with the word another consideration. Another consideration was also added to these that agreed with the office committed to us by God. We understand that we owe our subjects a service. We should diligently care for the things that apply to this life and the life to come. We should take pains with the greatest earnestness and our utmost ability to attend to those matters that promote a 
the extension of God's name and his glory. B, the spread of his word, from which alone we hope for salvation. C, the peace and tranquility of churches and schools. And D, the instruction and consolation of disturbed consciences. We must do this, for it is certainly a settled fact that this healthy work of a Christian concord has already been longed for and expected with anxious prayers and great greatest desires by many good and sincere people, both of the highest and lowest rank. We have not held the following opinion from the beginning of this work of peaceful settlement. Neither do we hold to it even now. This work of concord, so healthy and most necessary, should be removed from the people's eyes and completely concealed. The light of heavenly truth should be placed under a bush or a table. Therefore, we should in no way delay its publication. Nor do we doubt that all the godly, who are lovers of the heavenly truth and of concord pleasing to God, will approve of this healthy, useful, godly, and very necessary undertaking with us. We believe that they will act so that nothing may be lacking in them, even to the greatest effort, by which God's glory and the common welfare may be promoted in both temporal and eternal things. Pastor, continue on. Okay, so there's a there's it's very interesting um, reference to the duties of the electors and princes. So, uh, electors and princes of the Holy Roman Empire. So, if the readers are with us in their Book of Concord, just turn back to the the very first paragraph. So, paragraph one of the book of of the preface, and you'll you'll read there to the readers one and all. These are writings. We are the electors, princes, and deputies of the Holy Roman Empire in Germany. Okay, so our understanding of that, our first reading of that would be, these are political positions, electors, princes, and deputies. And, and now they are saying in the paragraph that we're in, so back to paragraph 22, and um, about the middle there, where we started, uh, we understand that we owe our subjects this service, that we should diligent, so we, the electors, princes, and deputies of the Holy Roman Empire, Understand that we should, we owe our uh, our uh, our subjects this service that we should take pains with. Uh, we should diligently care for things that apply to this life and the life to come. Now, how does that strike you? The hmm. political powers of the day understood themselves to be responsible for the things of this life and of the life to come. How would you feel if the if your senator was responsible for? the things of the life to come. They, they owed it to the subject, to their subjects, to be responsible for the things of the life to come. Lutherans recoil at the idea. Under our democratic system of government, we think, whoa. And those who might be a little bit more astute would probably say something like, well, isn't that somewhat a mixing of the two kingdoms? The kingdom of the right and the kingdom of the left, that is the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of the world or political things and religious things. And I'm not sure that we can answer that completely in that way. Um, it's hard to get back into the context of a day so many centuries ago and, and, and how life, daily life was ordered. But it's clear that the electors, uh, princes, and deputies of the Holy Roman Empire felt that they had some responsibility not only to govern the, the civic life, but also to attend to the spiritual matters of their subjects. And so they wanted to, be a, they wanted to publish 
this book of Concord. We don't like that mixing of the two kingdoms, and it could probably produce disaster in our circumstances. But there are areas where some people are kind of arguing in favor of that, say, for example, public prayer in school um, or other issues that uh, touch on the, the, um, the relationship between church and state. That's the, usually the way we frame it today. We probably don't have time to go into all of that, but it, but it is a lively issue for us. And, and we see in this sort of historical piece how the so-called, or as we would frame it, the political entities, the princes, electors, and deputies of the Holy Roman Empire, understood their responsibilities under God, and how the church gave it to them as well. It, it is something that's so counter what we're used to. I do appreciate how they break it down, where we will go with great pains and earnestness to up, up, up our utmost ability to attend to those matters that promote you know, the extension of God's name, the spread of his word, the peace and tranquility, the instructions and consolation of disturbed, disturbed consciences. It's, it's, it's hard for us to even gather that, one, if we had that in our own government today, I don't think that list of four things would be on the list. It would be purely for political power, I would, I would probably say, in our world. Sure. But in those days, I mean, they had a, a very clear understanding of what the purpose was. It can be abused, no doubt. How do we look at that in our two kingdoms? Uh, I don't know. But it, it is nice that they did lay it out in that sense that this was the principles, if you will, of why they're doing what they're doing. So I, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe we need some, uh, I don't know, we need someone else to kind of come on and clarify for all this, but it is good for us to wet our palate as we go through the whole book of Concord to understand that this was at least the motivation. Yes, and I appreciate it. I wanted to touch on those four categories of responsibilities as they understood. So as they understood their responsibility to attend to the matter of the life to come, they broke it down into these four categories. They wanted to attend to God's glory and his name. Yes. So as you read through the book of Concord, that, that's what we're doing. We're prefacing the book of Concord. As you read through the book of Concord, you should look for how does this article of doctrine attend to the proclamation of God's name and his glory? Secondly, and we probably would say at this point, at least I would, as mo of most importance, that word of salvation, the word of Christ to our salvation. So as you read through the Articles of Doctrine, how does this attend to the matter of the word of salvation? And then thirdly, for the peace and the tranquility of the churches, um, that might be a place, that would be very interesting to talk with, you know, someone who's super smart on this, <laughs> but that might be a place where we would agree, yes, the political entities of the day do have some responsibility to attend to the matter of peace and tranquility of the churches. That is, we would probably frame it as freedom of religion, um, laws that allow churches to teach what they want to teach. We say it today, um, sincerely held religious beliefs. And so there might be one place where we would agree. And then the second or the fourth one, which what you mentioned a number of times and, and appears all through the Book of Concord, that is to comfort consciences that are distressed. And uh, it, it is a significant aspect of our confessions. And it is, um, as we said earlier in the, in the last segment, about making sure the Word of God applies to people's lives because they're distressed. They, they really do have questions. Am, am I saved? 
Is there an afterlife? Am I going to be there? Uh, have I sinned too much or too greatly for Jesus to forgive me so that people hear the word of God in this way? You can be comforted because Jesus is your Savior. Well, Pastor, we have just under 10 minutes left in our time, and I'd like to get to the conclusion. Yes. Because what you're saying is pure gold, but it gets even better, I would say, in the conclusion. So we're on page 11 of uh, paragraph number 23 of the conclusion to the preface. <clears throat> we repeat in conclusion that when we mentioned several times earlier, in this work of concord, we have not at all wished to create something new or to depart from the truth of the heavenly doc doctrine, which our ancestors renowned for their piety, as well as ourselves have acknowledged and professed. We mean the doctrine that, having been taken from the prophetic and apostolic scriptures, is contained in the three ancient creeds in the Augsburg Confession presented in the year of 1530 to the Emperor Charles V of excellent memory. C in the Apology, which was added to this, D in the small called articles, and lastly, in both the catechisms, that excellent man, Dr. Luther. Therefore, we also determine not to depart even a finger's breadth, either from the subjects themselves or from the phrases that are found in them. But the Spirit of the Lord aiding us, we attend to persevere constantly with the greatest harmony in this godly agreement. And we intend to examine all controversies according to this true norm and declaration of the pure doctrine. Then with the rest of the electors, princes and deputies of the Holy Roman Empire and the other kings, princes and, and magnates of the Christian state in accordance with their constitution of the Holy Empire and the agreements that we have with them, we determined and desired to cultivate peace and harmony. We determined to render each one according to this rank all duties belonging to us together with the services of friendship. Besides having made known our goals, we also earnestly apply ourselves to the great strictness and most ardent zeal to the defense of this work of concord. We will do this by diligently visiting the churches and schools in our realms, overseeing printing offices and other helpful means according to the opportunities and circumstances that may be offered to us and others. We will also take pains if controversies already mentioned should be renewed, our new controversies about religion should arise to remove and settle them speedily. We, we will work to avoid offense without long and dangerous delays. As a clear testimony of this, we have the great consent uh, described our names and attached also our seals. All these names that below are there. I'm not going to read all of those, but also shown this is not like one or two guys who just got together in a room. It was a breath of individuals that maybe we'll touch on a little bit later. Pastor, with about seven minutes left in our time, how do you want to speak about the conclusion? Okay, so in the conclusion, uh, they they kind of list for us the things that are contained in the Book of Concord. You would expect that in, in a preface. And so they reference the ancient creeds, uh, the three creeds that we confess, the Augsburg Confession, the Apology, the Small Cold Articles, and the Catechisms, Small and Large Catechisms of Luther. So really important what's what's missing there and probably because it's of, of late reference which is included in the book of concord of course is the formula of concord so just in case your listeners are <laughs> looking at the current table of contents uh that's not listed but it is included in the book of concord and that deals with uh, certain issues that were present at, uh, at the time of the publication of the book of concord um but significant here a couple things in, the, in this paragraph is I just like this phrase, we're determined not to depart even a finger's breadth from the subject themselves. So, so um, 
again, they're saying, this is what we believe, teach, and confess. Don't let anyone confuse you. Um, there was there was some fake news in those days as well. People were saying different things about the Lutheran confessions that were not true. And so the Lutherans are taking this opportunity to say, this is what we believe, teach, and confess. It's what we've always believed, taught, and confessed, and we're not, we're, we're not going to uh, depart even a finger's breadth from them. Um, and then, or did you want to jump in? No, I was just going to say, it's, I mean, they're serious about this. This is not something they kind of just made up. I mean, they were definitely serious that we want to preserve the holy and Catholic small c faith that has always been there according to Scripture. So that's just very eye-opening as you, as you read these words. Right. And, and another thing is at the sort of in the or towards the end of paragraph 23, uh, they're determined to do that within the strictures of the Holy Roman Empire, the Constitution of the Holy Roman Empire. So uh, it kind of refers to, again, what we covered in the last part, uh, the difference between their political context and ours. The princes are wanting to do this within the Constitution of the Holy Roman Empire as it has been prescribed to them. So this is the way they thought. This was their responsibility to attend to matters of this life and of life to come. Mm-hmm. I do want to talk, uh, touch on paragraph 24 because I think it's, this is very significant for us, especially as uh, members of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And that is the methodology or the means by which the confessors had determined that they were going to defend this work of concord. So paragraph 24 Uh, We also earnestly apply ourselves with great strictness, most ardent zeal, to the defense of this work of concord. So the defense of the booklets being published. And then they outline for us, we will do this uh, by diligently visiting the churches in our schools and realms and overseeing printing offices. So they list two things, two means that they are going to use to defend uh, pure doctrine proclamation and the uh, sustenance of pure doctrine. One is visitation of the churches. Now, we could talk for a long time about that and and how they did it. Um, Then you can have to get another historian on to talk about that. But but in short, the princes and electors, the political entities, would appoint theologians to go around and visit the congregations to make sure that the behavior of the pastors and the doctrine that the pastors were teaching were in accordance with the confessions of the Lutheran Church. Very interesting. That is one of the self-demonstrated responsibilities of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. The Synod has said one of the reasons that we um, uh, we organize ourselves as a Synod is for the sustenance or upholding of pure doctrine. And one of the methods that we have chosen to use is visitation. Maybe your listeners are, are, are not clear on this, but that is one of the major responsibilities of district presidents. They're charged with visiting all of the congregations under their charge uh, and make sure that the behavior of called church workers and the doctrine that they are teaching is in accordance with our confession. So we're using the same means that are demonstrated here uh, in the preface. And then the second one is the publication of Orthodox materials. And the Lutheran Church of Missouri Senate has also attended to that matter. That's why we began the Concordia Publishing House. Because, like it or not, 
Pure doctrine just doesn't sell on the open market. You go to a Christian bookstore today, if any of them still exist, you go to a Christian bookstore and you're not going to find great tomes on pure Christian doctrine. You're going to find kind of strange things that <laughs> apply to how you can save yourself by doing this or by doing that. So, um, again, Lutheran Church Missouri Synod said, this is one of the responsibilities that we're going to take as, as congregations together. We want to make sure that pure doctrine gets published. So we're doing Pastor, what they did, what they said they were going to do. Pastor, one minute left. I know you want to highlight one of the signers before we go. I do. I do. So if, if the readers would look, or your listeners would look on paragraph 25, the signers, the second name there, uh, excuse me, the third name, John Margrave of Brandenburg. You should know this guy. You should look him up and read about him. At the presentation of the Augsburg Confession, uh, when the emperor was was pressing on the Lutheran princes to attend the Corpus Christi service the next day and, and to agree that they wouldn't preach any Lutheran doctrine during the presentation of the Augsburg Confession out in the city, George of Brandenburg was the guy who said to the emperor, arguably the most powerful guy in the world at that time, he said, before I let anyone take the word of God from me or make me deny my God, I will kneel down and he can lop off my head. Now that's my guy, and that should be your guy also, a bold confessor of the faith. Here it is. This is what we believe, teach, and confess. Take it or leave it. And if you need to leave it, you can lop off my head in the process. That's a good way to end here today. Pastor Terry Forkey, president of the Montana District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Pastor Forkey, thank you for your faithful teaching on Concord Matters. Great to be with you. Thanks. God's peace to everyone. I'm your host, Pastor Brady Finnern. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe.